with me, if you would, in Romans chapter number 1. And uh, let's look in verse number, uh, verse number thir- 13. The Bible says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto. That means that I was hindered. He's saying, I wanted to come, but I was hindered. I was let hitherto. That I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. He says, I wanted to come. I've been hindered from coming, but here's why I wanted to come. I wanted to come that I might have some fruit there in Rome uh, as, I, as I have among other Gentiles all over the world. Verse number 14, of course, Paul's writing, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why don't we do this together tonight? Why don't we read that verse together? Verse number 16, it's a familiar one. Some of you may even have committed it to memory, but let's read it together out loud. You've got a Bible in front of you, and we'll pause, of course, at the various punctuation places there and, and to try to read it orderly, but let's read that together. Ready? Verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Isn't that a great verse? A very familiar verse. In fact, one of the more familiar verses in all of the Bible. And of course, the author here is a man that we know of as the Apostle Paul. And of course, Paul was formerly a man by the name of Saul. And he was saved while on a trip to Damascus. And you know what he was doing as he was going to Damascus? He wasn't going for vacation. He wasn't going to further his education. He wasn't going there on business. Uh, Well, I suppose we might say that he was going there on business. He was going to Damascus to persecute people who believed in the gospel, people who worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a staunch Pharisee prior to his conversion. He was a hater of Christ's life, of Christ's teaching, and, and certainly of Christ's disciples. And yet after his conversion, he became a soul winner. He became a church planner. And he became a preacher of the very gospel that he so hated prior to coming to Christ. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I think we would all agree that if you're going to write something, you're going to say something, you better practice what you preach, right? I think we would all be in agreement with that. Everybody hates someone who says one thing and lives a different way. And without a shadow of a doubt, the Apostle Paul practiced what he preached. What he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he could say, hey, listen, look at my life because truly since I've been in Christ, I am a new creature. The old things in my life, the persecuting and the hatred and the animosity and, the, uh, and all of these things that I did have passed away and all things have become new in my life since I have been in Christ Jesus. So he's a living example of this scripture that God allowed him to pen or to write. He had truly been transformed into a new creature in Christ Jesus. You know, his change was so dramatic that he even, not only did he have a new lifestyle and a new message, but you know, he even received a new name. 
He went from being known as Saul to a man known as Paul, according to Acts chapter 13 and verse number 9. And you know as well as I do that there is clear teaching in the Bible that a believer's life should be different after salvation from what it looked like before salvation or before they came to Christ. And here's the question I want to begin with tonight, and that is this. Does your life, does my life reflect the change that Christ makes when he takes up residence in you? Now, we've all, we've all met people who uh, we knew prior to them falling in love. We knew them before that. Uh, prior to them meeting someone and falling head over heels in love and you know, and getting engaged and getting married. And, uh, and, and, and if you look at their life and say, boy, this person is way different now than he was before. Now, what's the difference? The difference is they've met someone and they act sort of strange, don't they? When they get around that someone, man, they just sort of get lost with that person around. It's like nobody else is in the room. And sometimes they say weird things to one another, you know, things that are sort of gross and nasty and bizarre. It's like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear you profess your undying love in front of me and, and, uh, and all those sorts of things. And yet we all tolerate it. We understand it, right? And here's, here's, how, we, here's how we explain it. Well, they're in love. You know, that, you know, they're just lovebirds. They're honeymooners. You know, they give them time, give them time, give them a year or two, and they won't be talking like that anymore. Isn't that a shame that that's the way that we look at things, but oftentimes we do. Now, what's the difference? Why do they act that way? Because they've met someone, and that someone has changed their life, and they're no longer the person that they were before. Now, let me ask you this question. If, if a, if, guys, if a young woman can do that to you, Ladies, if a young man can do that to you, can you imagine the change that Christ could make in your life? You meet the Savior of the world. You meet Jesus who died on the cross to save you. Listen, he's the only one that ever died to save you. He's the only one that ever died to save me. And when you get to know him, when you get to meet him, boy, there ought to be a great change in your life. So does your life, does my life reflect the change that Christ makes when he takes up residence in you? Paul's life, it certainly did. And you know what it, it, it did? It made him, among many other things, it made him a very passionate soul winner and preacher of God's word. Now, next Sunday is Friend Day here at our church, and we're encouraging every member to invite a friend to come with them. This isn't about hitting a certain attendance figure or a certain mark. You know, we, we, we don't know what to expect. We have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we're not saying, okay, if we're, it's not going to be a success unless we have this many people in church and unless we have this many visitors. We're just saying, listen, if the Lord's burdened you and the Lord's put someone in your path that is lost, well, then let's invite them and see and see if they come. Really what this is about, this is about exposing people to the gospel. And if you'll notice in our text, Paul writes in verse number 15, the title to the message tonight. And that is this, he writes, for I am ready to preach the gospel. The title of the message tonight is just that, ready to preach the gospel. You know, before Christ left, he gave his followers one final charge, one final responsibility that they were to be all about. And we discover that in Matthew chapter number 28. And I want you to look, look there with me if you would. Matthew 28. Hold your place there in Romans 1. We'll return there. We'll spend most of our time in Romans 1. But I want you to look as we're beginning here in Matthew chapter 28. In this passage of scripture, we have what is commonly referred to as the great 
Commission, the Great Commission. And this, in this commission, he is, he is commissioning them to do and to be focused on primarily one thing. And that one thing, if we were to boil it all down, that one thing is this, it is evangelizing the lost. Now you'll notice that this commission includes three specific actions or three specific uh, uh, elements to it. And I want you to see them. We're, we're, we find them in verse number 19 and verse number 20 where the Lord Jesus Christ says to his followers, he says, number one, go ye therefore and teach all nations. So the first action that is included in the great commission is this, to preach, to preach. We are to preach. The Bible says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now teach them what? What do you suppose he wants the, us to teach them? Now listen, I'm all for, I'm all for teaching the things that are found in Scripture. But I, I must tell you, listen, if we've, taught, if we've taught people about how God's preserved his Bible, and if we've taught people about modesty and, and decency, and if we've taught people about conservative uh, you know, biblical values and morals, and yet we have not given them the gospel. Listen, we have failed. We've failed. I'll say that again. If we have, if we have taught them some of these peripheral issues, and listen, th- these are good things. These are good things that we ought to emphasize, no doubt about it. But listen, if people, if people think about us, now think about this for a moment. If people think about us, oh, that's the church, that's the church where all the men have short hair, and they, don't, and they don't know that it's the church where Jesus is preached, we failed miserably. We failed miserably. If they say, oh, that's the church where all the women wear, uh, wear those modest dresses. That's the church where they sing conservative music. That's the church where they all carry the King James Bible when they go into church. And that's all that they know about us. We have failed miserably. You know what they ought to say? They ought to say, that's the church where they tell you about Jesus. That's the church where they preach salvation by grace through faith. That's the church where every time you go there, you're going to hear the gospel. That's the most important thing of all. Those other things come after someone hears the gospel, after someone has been converted and, and, and has been changed by Christ. But I'm just simply saying, listen, we have been commissioned to go into all of the world and we are to teach all nations. What are we to teach them? We're to teach them that Jesus died on the cross to save them. And the reason he did that is because they're sinners. And if they don't repent of their sin and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then they're gonna, they're gonna die and spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. And the good news is that they don't have to go there. That Jesus died on a cross to save them. That's what we're, that's what we're gonna be doing. So the Great Commission gives us three specific actions. Number one is to preach. Now how are we doing how are we doing in this area of preaching the gospel? I think we're doing pretty good. But listen, I, I also know this. There's always room for improvement. We could, always, we could always step it up a notch, don't you suppose? Don't you suppose that we could probably, if we wanted to, we could probably start 10 more bus routes next week and still not cover this entire city? We certainly could. We've got a Super Saturday schedule for this Saturday. And I don't know how many people are going to come, but probably a, a halfway decent number. But you know what, if every, if every person in this room tonight said, you know what, I'm going to be there next Saturday, because I just believe in what they're doing, and, and I just believe that I, I should give, at the very least, I can give an hour and a half on a Saturday morning to go out in a community and put tracks on doors. Listen, if, if every person showed up, we still wouldn't have enough. No, listen, the world is vast, and there are so many people to reach. We can all, listen, I, I, again, I believe Cleveland Baptist Church is a great church, but I know this, there is a lot of room for improvement in this church. Listen, I know in, in my own life, there's a lot of room for improvement in what I'm, I'm preaching to you about tonight. 
Great Commission, three specific actions. Number one is preach. But notice, secondly, he goes on to say, not only go you therefore and teach all nations, but he says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the, the first step is to preach. And then once people have been preached to, the assumption that Jesus makes is that some of them are going to be saved. And when they are saved, then the next step is this, then they need to be baptized. You need to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, baptism is another step, isn't it? Baptism is, a, is, is another commitment. They're, they're essentially saying, listen, I've been saved, but as I enter into the waters of baptism, I am agreeing, I am saying that I want to live a new life in Christ Jesus. That's the statement that baptism makes. Therefore, therefore people ought to think long and hard before they, they enter into the waters of baptism. Now, the waters of baptism don't save anybody. They don't change anybody. They don't wash away a single sin. But there is a, uh, there is a, a symbolic element to it in which someone is saying, listen, I am, I, am, I am treating this Christian life very seriously. I want to live the Christian life. It's sort of like this wedding ring that I wear. I put this wedding ring on on this very platform, platform a little bit more than 22 years ago. And I remember standing on that platform, and I remember thinking, yeah, this is a big deal. This is serious stuff. By standing here and by repeating these vows and by putting this wedding ring on my finger, I am saying, I am saying that for the rest of my life, I am committing myself to this person. It's a big deal. It's significant. You know, baptism is the same thing. By entering the waters of baptism, I am, I am saying this, listen, I have been born again. Christ has changed my heart and he's changed my life and I'm not ashamed of him. And from now on, I'm gonna live my life as a believer, a clear believer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So baptism is a very, very important part of the Great Commission. Baptism doesn't save anybody. But once someone has been saved, then they need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And then there's a third action that is found in the Great Commission and that is this, not only preach, not only baptize, but number three, to disciple. It says at the end of verse number 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You know what he's saying? He's saying here, he's saying, listen, preach the gospel first and make sure they get saved. And then once they're saved, baptize them. And once you've gotten them saved and baptized, then, then, you can, then you can dive a little bit deeper and you can begin to teach them some of these deeper things. But listen, none of those things matter. None of those things matter in teaching them to observe all things until you have first taught them about my son, Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. And that's why, that's why I make this commitment to you. Next Sunday, when you come and you bring a guest with you, I hope you will, I'm, I'm not gonna preach on, the, on why we use the King James Bible. Because you know what? That doesn't matter to someone who's lost. It doesn't matter, not a, not a single bit. And I'm not going to preach to you on why we believe in, you know, in, 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 in modesty and why we believe in marriage between a man and a woman. Listen, that, that, we could talk about that stuff later. But you know what? If you get, if you get people here doing on Christ, you know what I want to preach to them? I want to preach to them about how Jesus died to save them. Because that's the most important thing. Now, the Great Commission is all three actions. It is preach, tell them about Jesus, win them to Christ. Once they've been saved, baptize them. Once they've been saved and baptized, now let's, now let's start to pour into them and let's tell them what the Bible teaches about this and let's tell them what the Bible teaches about church and faithfulness and reading God's word and praying and living a morally pure life and doing this and looking like a believer and acting like a believer and talking like a believer. Then we can get into those things, but until they've been saved and baptized, none of those things things matter. And that's the Great Commission. 
Now, every church should be emphasizing these things. Can I say it's great to have programs, it's great to have events and buildings and fellowship. Can I say that all of these are secondary to the main purpose of the local church? And that is this, that each member be involved in preaching. Preaching, that is winning new believers to Christ. Each member be involved in baptizing. Perhaps maybe you have sat around someone who's maybe a little bit newer to our church. When was the last person you went to and you talked to them about their soul? Hey, you've been coming for a little while. I just wanna, I just wanna know for sure. Do you know for sure that Jesus is your savior? Do you know for sure that heaven is your home? They might respond with a resounding yes. I have been born again. Let me tell you about when I got saved. You know what the next question you can ask them is? Well, have you ever been baptized? Have you ever followed the Lord in believer's baptism? Can I tell you a little bit more about what we believe? Let me say it this way. Let me, can I tell you a little bit more about what the Bible teaches about baptism? If they say, yes, I was baptized after I was saved. I was baptized at this church. I followed the Lord, and it was such a special day. And, and then you might ask them this question. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone through something known as discipleship in which someone has sat down with you, and they've begun to walk you through the scriptures, and they've taught you what the Bible teaches about various doctrines? And at that point, they may say, no, I, I've never been a part of that. And you know what? Every member ought to be involved in this work. We haven't gotten the job done just because somebody walked the aisle and made a profession of faith. We still got work to do. There's folks that need to be baptized, and there's folks that need to be discipled, and we have, we, we have um, uh, available opportunities for them to be involved in these things. Now, can I say that I believe that Friend Day shouldn't just be in a, a day in our annual calendar? Believers ought to be consistently bringing lost people to Christ and then bringing them into the church to be baptized and then bringing them further so that they can be discipled. Listen, every last one of us, every last one of us should be involved in this work. In Romans 1, Paul opens this letter addressing the saints here in Rome. These believers had an incredible testimony throughout the whole world. Would you go back to Romans chapter 1, and would you look in verse number 8, where Paul talks about what is known about this group of believers in Rome. Look, he says in verse number eight, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, likely this was one of the most dangerous and difficult places in all of the world for one to live out their faith. It might be similar to a believer living out their faith in communist China today. We've all heard of the underground church and of groups of people that are meeting. In fact, we just had a preacher here not long ago who gave a testimony being arrested as a pastor in China. Remember what he talked to? He said, he said in our churches there in China, he says, we tell the folks as we're singing to open your mouth wide but not to make any sound because the Chinese government does not permit open worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't permit people gathering together like this. Well, I have to tell you that, uh, that just as we think of the saints that are in China who are dwelling underneath that communist regime, and we have great respect for them, and we look at the, the underground church, we marvel at what's happening there and how, how it's advancing and going forward in the face of such intense persecution. Can I just be really honest with you that the same types of things were happening in Rome? Paul writes that he'd been praying for them faithfully in verse number nine. And his prayer request was this, that God would grant him the opportunity to come and to meet them. Would you look in verses nine and 10? He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. And he says, what, what, what do you make mention of us for, Paul? Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. So Paul's prayer was that, I, that God would grant him the opportunity to get to Rome so that he could meet these believers and so that he could have an opportunity to preach the gospel there. He said this, he says, if the Lord allows me this opportunity, 
He says, then I will come, and when I do, I plan to impart to you a spiritual gift. Would you look in verse number 11? For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. Now, now don't get all confused about that. A lot of people read that and say, oh, spiritual gift. I bet, I bet Paul, when he, when he got to them, he was gonna lay his hands on them and they were gonna receive some miracle working power. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I really don't. In fact, I think the next verse sort of reveals what he's saying. He says, that, it, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You know the spiritual gift I think Paul wanted to impart to them? I think he wanted to impart to them the spiritual gift of mutual fellowship and comfort and encouragement in the gospel. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if I come to you, then man, I'm, I'm gonna do everything in my power to encourage you by the way that I'm living and through my teaching and through my preaching. And he says this, if, if I come to you, I know you're gonna do the same to me. And if, I believe that's the spiritual gift he's referencing there. Sometimes we get so caught up in you know, spiritual gifts of laying on of hands and you know, speaking in tongues and being able to heal people. But can I tell you that some of, the, some of the sweetest spiritual gifts that God gives us is just the fellowship we have with one another? the fellowship we have with him, the encouragement that we receive from God's word and the teaching and preaching that God blesses us with. Paul says, listen, I, I want you to know that if I have an opportunity to minister with you, I know that you'll be blessed and I'll be blessed, that you'll be strengthened and I'll be strengthened, and that you'll be established through this time that we'll have together. I was just thinking to myself as I was preparing for the message, just recently we were blessed, weren't we, as a church, by the preaching and teaching ministry of Dr. John Getch. He was here with us for, I don't know, three or four days. And I think I might have heard more positive comments about that meeting than just about any other meeting we've ever had. And, and, and I, would just, I would just say this, that in a very real sense, he, his ministry was a spiritual gift to our church to enjoy. We were helped by that. We were blessed by that. And I think that's what Paul is referencing here. So again, don't get twisted. I don't think this is talking about some, you know, if I get to Rome, then I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give you some magic power that you can use. No, no I, I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I think he's talking about the spiritual gift in which we're together edifying one another and encouraging one another. Now, Paul wrote that he'd intended to come to Rome on other occasions, but had been hindered from getting there. And of course, we know Paul wasn't going to sightsee. He wasn't going to relax. He wasn't going to vacation. He wasn't there to, to go to the, you know, the Roman bathhouses and the spas and the different things that might have been available during that part of, in that part of the world to take part in some of the various feasts and celebrations that Rome would have been famous for. No, he was not going there to lobby with the political leaders in the Roman Empire. No, he was seizing every day that he had been given for one purpose, and that was to preach the gospel. Paul's approach to the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, his approach to gospel ministry is revealed in our text. So as we prepare for Friend Day, just a few short days from now, we're wise to be reminded of Paul's ministry philosophy and his ministry priorities as they are really, really, they're not Paul's ministry philosophies and priorities. You know what they are? They're Bible ministry philosophies and priorities. And they're given to us that we might, that we might see a world that is lost, one, to the power and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so let me just share with you two key thoughts here and a couple of things under each one. Number one, I think Paul writes here and we discover that a Bible ministry philosophy priority is this. Number one, that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. Verse number 14, Paul says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. You know, you know what we need to understand from verse number 14 is this, that you and I, listen, we owe everyone an opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. We owe everyone an opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. The word debtor is used here, and of course it means an ower or a person that is indebted. 
Paul viewed every person he came in contact with as someone that he owed a debt to. I think this is missing in our context, isn't it? I think it's missing in most of our Christian lives. Paul, Paul says, I, I don't owe them a financial debt. I owe them a spiritual debt. See, see Paul, Paul had received the gospel in a, in a unique way, hadn't he? He, he, um, he had received the gospel by direct revelation from the Lord. He's traveling to Damascus one day, and as he's traveling, all of a sudden, a bright light shines from heaven, and the Holy Spirit of God begins to speak to Paul, and he, and he, and he tells him, listen, here's who I am. I'm Jesus. I'm the one whom you're persecuting. And he gives him a, he gives him a charge that from now on, you know, you're going to preach my gospel, and that's how Paul was gloriously saved. But you know as well as I do that that is the exception that's not the rule. Most people are not going to be going through life and they're not going to have some bright light that has shined upon them and they're going to hear some voice from heaven. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying this, that, that most people, if they're going to hear the gospel, they're going to hear it from our lips. It's not going to come from some heavenly vision. Now, I don't know why God worked the way that he did with Saul other than that he was, just a, he was a very special chosen vessel and maybe that was the only way that Saul was ever going to be reached, but that's what God did for him. But, but Paul was not under any delusion that this was gonna be what God would do in the lives of other people. He understood that his case was a unique one, but that most people were not going to see a vision from heaven in order to be saved. And he believed this. He believed that others, every other person he met, was owed a chance to hear the gospel so that they might receive the gospel. And if they were not going to receive a vision from heaven, then the only way, the only way they were going to hear it was through the lives of others, through the lips of others. And the same thing is true today. Your neighbors are never going to hear the gospel because they walk outside one day and a bright light from heaven shines and they hear some voice. They're not gonna hear it tonight when they go to bed and they wake up in the middle of the night and there'll be an angel standing in their room. God does not work that way anymore. God tells us how he works. He has commissioned us to go into all of the world and to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, if our loved ones are going to hear the gospel, if our loved ones are going to be saved, it is up to us. We owe them a debt to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Now, I think this is missing. This is missing in most of our lives today, my, my own included. We, we, don't we applaud and recognize great soul winners as if they've gone out of their way to do something remarkable? Now, think about this for a moment. If, if, Paul, said, if Paul said that I am debtor, you know what that means? That means that every person that is out there that he should be trying to win to Christ, that, that he owes a debt to that person. Now, all of us, all of us have bills to pay, don't we? And, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> you know, you've got a water bill, and you've got a sewer bill, and you've got a uh, natural gas bill, and you've got an electric bill, and you've got a mortgage to pay, and perhaps um, you've got a, a, a car note that you're paying on, and, and, uh, and maybe, maybe you even carry some credit card debt and, and, uh, and, and insurance that you're paying on and, and, and that sort of thing. And I just, I just have to be real honest with you. When you fill that, fill that check out or however it is that you pay that bill, you don't walk around and you don't wear like this big sign or carry some banner that says, I paid my bills. Look at me. Applaud me, congratulate me. Nobody does that. You, you owed that. You were a debtor. You didn't go above and beyond. You paid what you owed. And yet we have, we have sort of grown up in this culture where, you know, let's, let's celebrate the great soul winners. 
And I know why we do those things. We're trying to, we're trying to encourage other people to do the same. But can I just tell you something? Paul, Paul says, listen, don't, don't celebrate me. I owe a debt to these people. I'm just paying that which I've owed by giving them the gospel. I shouldn't be applauded for raising my children. They're my children. They're my responsibility. I shouldn't be applauded for loving my wife. She's my wife. She's my responsibility. I signed up for this. I signed up to love her as Christ loved the church. I should not be applauded for paying my bills. And can I say this? I shouldn't be applauded for serving the Lord. It's the least that I can do. If you bring somebody to church next Sunday, I probably will. Thank you. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't. That's the least you can do. You owe that person a debt. You live next to them. You sit in a cubicle next to them in the office every single day. And you've known them for all these years and that's the first time that you've invited them to church? That's the first time you've given them the gospel? Did you not realize that you are a debtor to them? And that every single person deserves, we owe them an opportunity to hear the gospel. Can I say that to fail to pay this debt is to default on it. And most Christians, listen, most believers, all of us have defaulted long ago. And because of this, the world remains largely without Christ. Paul says, I am debtor. Everyone is owed, everyone is owed the opportunity to hear the gospel, at least once. Notice, secondly, we discover not only that everyone is owed an opportunity to hear the message of the gospel, number two, we discover in this text that Christ loves everyone. Who he says, he says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Let me try to... Let me try to break down what he's saying here. The, the Greek there that is identified, he says, when I, I am debtor, both to the Greeks, he's speaking of, of people that were, uh, that were refined, that were polished, that were considered wise. That, that, that was what the Greek was known as. And, and to be very honest with you, most believe that as he writes that, he had the Romans in mind as well. Because they were a civilized society too. They, uh, they were advanced in education and, and, uh, and certainly in architecture and in just way of life and way of living. Uh, you can even go into those parts of the world now and you can see things that are now two millennia old that are, uh, that, that are things that is obvious that they were well ahead of their time. So, so you understand when he is saying, I am debtor both to the Greeks and then he says a little bit later, to the wise, he's speaking of one and the same. The Greeks, the Romans, they were considered wise. They were considered polished and refined. Their, their, their civilization was civilized and it was cultured and, and it was highly thought of. They were an educated group of people. Then he uses the terms, as both to the Greek and to the barbarian. Even today, sometimes we'll, we'll use this term, we'll say something about, you know, that guy, he is barbaric. You know what that means? That just simply means, speaks of foreigners. It speaks of unpolished, unrefined, and ultimately unwise. So when we think of a barbarian, we think of somebody maybe on an island somewhere who you know, maybe, maybe doesn't hardly wear any clothes or their clothes are very primitive and they live in a very primitive culture and, and they don't have a lot as far as education is concerned, as far as civilization is concerned. I, I mean, their, their, uh, their, their, their lifestyle is very, very primitive. They are unpolished, they are unrefined, and they are considered unwise. And, and so when we take all of that together, when we take all of that together, here's, here's what it boils down to. It boils down to this, that Jesus loves everybody. You might be polished tonight. You might be refined tonight. You might be wise tonight. Had a conversation earlier this week with someone who's about a year or so away from getting their PhD. That's impressive. 
We'd all agree. You know, you, you spend a lot of time in a classroom somewhere. You, you, you've, you've overachieved if you're going to arrive at that level. That's impressive. And Jesus loves somebody like that. By the same token, maybe even someone here tonight who maybe you didn't even finish high school. Maybe you got a GED. Maybe you didn't even get that. Maybe life circumstances just happened the way that they did and maybe you were forced out of school or maybe you chose to leave school and, and, uh, and you never spent, a, never spent another day in high school and you never spent a single day in college and, and uh, any type of advanced learning. And, and so educationally, educationally, maybe you'd be considered unwise. But guess what? Jesus loves you too. He loves everybody. Christ loves everyone. Now we're all tempted, aren't we? We're all tempted to give the gospel to only certain types of people. For instance, if numbers alone are my goal, then, I, then I'll likely, I'll go to the unwise and I'll go to the uneducated because they're often more readily open to the gospel. Sometimes we think of maybe inner city environments or poorer communities where the gospel might be appealing because life lived there is just so difficult. It's like, give me any hope, give me any promise that this is not all that there is, that there's something better and I will cling to it and I'll hold on to it. So if numbers are my goal, maybe I'd go to the barbarians. On the flip side of things, maybe we think of a church planner and, and, uh, and, and, and he's, or a pastor, and maybe they're thinking to themselves, you know, we, we've got enough unpolished, unrefined people around here. Let, let's, let's, go to the, let's go to the places where people are successful and where they have good jobs and they live in nice homes and they work really hard and they seem to have their life all together. Oh, it'll be a little bit harder to reach those people, but if we reach those people, well, then, man, we can maybe expand, you know, our, our, our financial base and we can maybe fill our church with sharp, educated, and respected people. And so they start thinking of what college campuses can we go to where education is king or what suburbs can we go to where folks are mostly educated and successful in life and business. And can I just say that, the, that, that James wrote, and he addressed that in James chapter number two as it relates to local churches. In fact, let's just hold our place here in Romans one and let's go to James chapter two real quick. I want you to see it. James chapter two, right after the book of Hebrews, James chapter two, look in verse number one. He said this, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, that's, that's the Greek. That's the wise, the polished and refined. He comes in, he's, he's dressed really sharp, he's got nice jewelry, he is, he is impressive. And there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, that's the barbarian. That's the unwise, the unpolished and the unrefined and ye have respect to him, you have respect to the Greek, to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou uh, here in a good place, and say to the poor, to the barbarian, stand thou here, there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? He says, how dare you, in a church context, in a church environment, to see someone who comes in and they're a Greek, they're a wise person, they're dressed sharp and, and they have jewelry and they're well put together and you say, here, sit over here and we want you to sit in the best place and we want you to have the best experience and then somebody else walks in and they're a barbarian, they're unpolished and unwise and unrefined and we say, you know, there's some seats up available on the balcony. You might just want to sit in the lobby and you sit in the back, no, nobody talks to them, everybody ignores them. We run to the people who look sharp and who look impressive. And you know, of course, James writes, he says, these things ought not to be. Shame on us. Shame on us. Why? Because Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves every bus rider, 
every bus rider. I, I received a note. Um, Mrs. Jones, I received a note from a, a dear young lady in your class, in the special friends class. And she wrote, she wrote the note. And of course, special friends is for our folks that, uh, that have some de- developmental disabilities. And she wrote this note. And I'll just be very frank. Some of it was hard to follow. But I did get this. She wrote, she said, we know, you're, we know we're your favorite class in the whole church. She wrote that in that note. I still have it in my office. You know what? Truth of the matter is, that is a great class, isn't it? And can I just be honest, be honest with you? Jesus loves our special friends. Oh, he loves the special friends. Just as much as he loves, that he loves the person that attends here who gives the most every year. Jesus loves them all. And because of that, because of that, we owe everybody an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because Jesus died for them. Unless his death be in vain for them, they're not gonna, they're not gonna see a light out of heaven. Uh, they're, not, they're not gonna hear a voice from heaven if they're going to hear the gospel, they're going to have to hear it through us. We owe everyone an opportunity to hear the gospel. I'm just simply saying that Christ's blood was not merely shed for the wealthy or the ed- educated. He shed his blood for the poor and the uneducated too. He loves the inner city just as much as he loves the suburbs. He loves the students on college campuses just as much as he loves the homeless in the shelter. Christ loves everyone. And because of this, everyone should hear his message of eternal life. As we conclude tonight, let me share with you secondly, not only this first thought that everyone needs the gospel. Number two, believers, believers must be ready to preach the gospel. Believers must be ready to preach the gospel. We won't spend a lot of time with the remainder of this message, but notice Paul identifies three key contributors to the gospel being preached. If people are going to hear it, these three things will be present. Number one is opportunity. Opportunity. Look in verse number 15. He writes, so as much as in me is. You know what Paul's saying? Paul is saying, listen, I've not yet had opportunity to preach the gospel in Rome. I've begged for it. I've pleaded with it. But for whatever reason, God has not allowed it yet. But he's saying this. He's saying, as much as in me is. He's saying, if I ever get there, if I ever get the opportunity, you better believe I'm not coming there to sightsee. I'm not coming there to debate and discuss politics. If I ever get there, as much as in me is, if I come, here's what I'm coming for. I'm gonna realize that it's an opportunity that God has given me, and I am gonna preach the gospel with everything that I have in me. Paul admitted that he longed to come to Rome, but had not yet been given freedom from the Lord to get there. Though Paul had still not gotten there, he was proclaiming in this verse, if the opportunity ever presented itself, he says, I will be ready to preach in this place, just as he had preached in other difficult places, places like Ephesus and Corinth and Jerusalem. Paul believed that if he were ever given the opportunity to preach in Rome, he would be ready, and he would boldly proclaim the truth in that place. So Paul's lack of preaching in Rome was only because he had not been given the opportunity just yet. Now, the same thing cannot be said for us living in Cleveland, Ohio, working wherever you work, living in whatever neighborhood you live in yet. You cannot, you cannot say, well, listen, I'd share the gospel with my neighbor, but I've not yet been given the opportunity. Oh, you've been given the opportunity. You just haven't taken advantage of it. And so have I. Some of us say, well, I, I'd preach the gospel in my workplace, but I've just not yet been given the opportunity. Listen, every last one of us have multiple opportunities, probably every single day, in some way to share our faith. And yet, how often do we not take advantage of it? If the gospel is going to be preached, if the people are going to hear it, there must first of all be an opportunity. We're often reminded that a missionary who will not give the gospel to his neighbors in America likely is not going to be very effective on a foreign field somewhere. Right? 
In other words, if someone is raising support to go to some far-flung corner of the world where they got to learn a new language and they're going to have to learn a new culture and they're going to have to really overcome a lot of things, but that person's not a soul winner here, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that they're going to do a whole lot over there. No, listen, if, you're gonna, if God has blessed you with an opportunity, you must seize upon it and you must be faithful to preach the gospel to those he has given you a relationship with already. What I'm saying is this, don't, don't come on Saturday and be ready to help us to pass out literature and knock on doors if, if, if you don't have a burden for people you already know. We talked about that last week, that Peter, excuse me, that Andrew had a priority, he went to his brother first. So if the gospel is going to be preached, this first element is opportunity, but no, secondly, is preparedness. Look in verse number 15. He says, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Preparedness. Now we spoke of this briefly last week. Here's the, here's the thought. When the opportunity does present itself, when God does open that door, are you prepared? And are you ready to march through it? Do you know what the Bible says? Do you know where the Bible says it? Are you able to take a copy of the word of God or even to take a gospel track and walk them through what the Bible says about a salvation, eternal life? I'm thinking to myself, what if you were to go home tonight and your neighbor, your neighbor were to walk over to your house and they were to knock on your door and you open the door and they looked at you and they said, what must I do to be saved? Would you be, would you be prepared to give them an answer? Or would you have to pull, pull your phone out and say, well, let me call my pastor real quick. Or let me call my Sunday school teacher. Or let me call this deacon that I have a relationship with the church. Or, you know, let me, let me, let me send you a YouTube link. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with your pastor going and visiting somebody or a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, or even sending people a YouTube link. I'm, I'm all for those things. But I'm just simply saying, listen, we, we could say, well, as much as in me is, I've not yet been given the opportunity to share the gospel. But if the opportunity did present itself, are you ready to preach the gospel? Are you prepared? Do you know what the Bible says? And we talked about this last week, so you've had, you've had seven days <laughs> Seven days to give some thought and time and attention to that. Have you done anything with it? Do you know how to tell someone how they can be saved? Notice thirdly, the third element that is necessary for the gospel we preach is not only opportunity and preparedness, but notice thirdly, it's boldness. Look in verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why don't we preach the gospel? Well, sometimes we lack opportunity. Sometimes it's because we're unprepared. But you know, I think sometimes the greatest reason as to why we don't share the gospel is because deep down we're ashamed. We're ashamed of it. The gospel is somewhat of a reproach a reproachful message to begin with, isn't it? In other words, to give somebody the gospel, I have to confront them in their sin. I have to tell them what the Bible says, that they're a sinner, and that their sin is serious enough to send them to hell. You see, most people acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner. Yeah, I'll agree with you. I've done some things that I'm not proud of. But very few people, very few people look at their sin and believe that it's serious enough to send them to hell. Most people don't think that about their sin. And in order to give someone the gospel, we have to sort of get to that point, don't we? And that's a little uncomfortable. Maybe we're a little ashamed of it. 
It's becoming less and less popular to be a believer in 2022, isn't it? Our culture is turning further and further away from biblical Christianity. And so the thought of confronting someone and identifying as a believer and preaching the gospel is sort of a, it can almost be viewed as sort of a thing that we're ashamed of. Paul, Paul wrote in our text, he said, listen, I can't do anything about those who refuse to believe. But he couldn't shake the fact that for those who did believe, they discovered that the gospel he was preaching to them was the power of God unto salvation. You may have been beaten down by those who have rejected the gospel as you've tried to share it. But can I say that that shouldn't steal your boldness. If you tell enough people the gospel message, eventually, listen, eventually someone will get saved. You just keep, you just keep preaching it because it is the power of God unto salvation. If we haven't seen anybody saved recently in our own personal life and in our own personal witness, more often than not, it's probably because we've just not as consistently as we ought to have been sharing the gospel. But if you'll commit to telling it to everybody you meet, if you'll look at everybody you meet and say, I owe that person a debt to preach the gospel to them, I guarantee you this, you'll see someone saved sooner or later. If we are going to be effective, we must seek opportunities. We must pray for them. When was the last time you prayed, God, give me an opportunity this week to give somebody a gospel track, to talk to someone about Christ, to invite someone to church. Give me an opportunity this week. Seek opportunity. When those opportunities come, we must be ready, prepared, know what the Bible says, know where the Bible says it. And finally, we must be bold. I love this verse. Proverbs 28, verse number one says this, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. But listen to the end of it. But the righteous are bold as a lion. You know what we're discovering? We're discovering that the wicked are as bold as lions today. In their sin and in their wickedness and in their evil, they are as bold as can be. And you know what's happening? We that are righteous, we that are saved, that know Christ. And by the way, our righteousness is never our own. It's Christ's righteousness. But the righteousness that we have, many times, many times, we're the ones that are fleeing even though no one is pursuing. May God help us. May God give us some boldness in our hearts and our lives so that we can walk into that office tomorrow and invite someone, tell someone, give someone the gospel so that we can go home this week and take a handful of tracks and maybe hit the doors just around our house and put a gospel track in their door, maybe even knock on the door and let them know, listen, I'm your neighbor. I attend Cleveland Baptist Church and I'd like to invite you to be my guest on a Sunday very, very soon. May God help us to be bold, to be bold as a lion. The invitation tonight is very simple, and here it is. Ask the Lord, ask the Lord to give you an opportunity, to give you an opportunity this week to share the gospel or to invite someone to be your guest at church on a day very soon. Number two, ask the Lord to help you to be prepared when he does give you that opportunity. Lord, would you help me to be ready to preach the gospel? And then finally, ask the Lord for boldness. Lord, would you help me to be bold as a lion as it relates to sharing my faith? That includes carrying tracts and not being ashamed to give them out and to tell people Christ loves them. That includes, Lord, would you help me to be eager to share the gospel with anyone no matter how they look, no matter how intimidated I might be by them or maybe even how more impressive I think I am than them. Help me to see everyone as a soul for which you died. Lord, would you give our church Holy Ghost boldness, to be bold as a lion as we share our faith in our world.